The topic, as you can see, that has been assigned to me, essentially is how we can remain faithful as ministers when our own lives begin to fall apart and we go through trials and difficulties, uh, when our health fails, when our families are hurting. Um, my intention is not to preach an expository sermon. We've heard quite a few of them already. We're going to be jumping around to a few different passages, essentially talking about the blessing of suffering in the life of a minister in the life of a pastor. The reality is, is that as pastors, we are exposed to an immense amount of suffering and pain and death. Uh, in the sin infested world that we live in, our flocks are thrust into intense trials, right? Babies get sick, parents abuse their children, siblings abandon the faith, cancer devastates. And in the end, at the end of the day, everybody dies and we're there for it all. Um, sin has brought so much suffering, so much death into our world. And as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are called to enter into that suffering, to mourn with people, to weep with those who weep. And it's an exhausting labor of love to bear the burdens of the people in our dear flocks. But frankly, things just get taken to a whole nother level when while simultaneously needing to weep with someone else and minister to someone else, I'm conflicted in my own soul because I'm going through a difficult trial. I visit a church member to, to weep with them because their son is sick and my son's at home recovering from surgery. We've all been in those situations. We need, we need God's grace. We need God's word to instruct us and to strengthen us to, to do so in a way that honors him. This morning, that, the outline that I'd like to follow is really simple. Uh, just two points. Uh, you won't need uh, to, to take too many notes on the outline here. I'm just going to talk a little bit about how to suffer well, how to suffer biblically. And then the second point, we're going to talk about how to comfort well, how to comfort biblically. And to, to start out, I just want you to notice that there's intention in the order there, that it's the suffering first and then the comforting. Um, that's intentional. Um, and the clarification that I wanted to start with is, is actually that oftentimes people teach that in order to be a good comforter, in order to minister to others that are going through trials, you yourself have to have gone through some massive trial, right? So if you're going to, if you're going to try to comfort someone who has cancer, I mean, you better have had open heart surgery or, or something like really major have gone on in your life or else you're not going to be able to minister to them. And I don't, I don't think that's the case. Um, the, the point is, is that all of us as Christians living in a fallen world go through trials. We all suffer. James 1 says they're multicolored, different kinds of trials, but we all suffer in some ways. And the point is, before we comfort others in their suffering, we better practice what we preach. We, we better be doing what we're telling them to do in their suffering with the trials that God is placing us in. I can't say to my brother, brother, James 1, you need to rejoice in your cancer, my brother, when I lose my joy when the Starbucks person gets my order wrong. Right? It's just, that's the, the height of hypocrisy that in my little trial, I'm not responding in the way that I'm asking someone else to respond. So the point is that I need to suffer well. I need to suffer biblically and be comforted by God biblically so that I can take that comfort 
to those who need it. And that's actually the principle you, you know in, in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4, where Paul says that the God of all comfort comforts us in all of our trials so that we can take that comfort that we've received and minister it to others. Second uh, Corinthians one, I got a few blank looks. I don't know if it's just the food or, or maybe you're not familiar with the verse, but we'll read it here. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction. And then we get the purpose clause so that, we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. And how do we do that? With the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So I'm not inventing some sort of comfort. I'm going through trials, just like everyone's going through trials. When I suffer biblically, God comforts me. And now I've passed that comfort on to others who are going through times of difficulty and times of need. So again, before going to try to comfort someone else in their pain, I need to suffer well. I need to suffer well. The best comforters are the best sufferers. And again, I'm not saying it's those who have suffered the most. I'm saying it's those who have suffered the best, who have suffered in the most biblical way, because they're the ones that have received the most comfort from God that they can then pass on to those that need it. Knowing how I ought to respond to God in my trials and then responding that way is what enables me to be a good comforter. So we're going to look through just a, a few principles, six principles on how we can suffer well, how we can suffer biblically. And then we're going to try to take that in the second half and discuss how we can comfort others biblically. The first point, if we're going to suffer well, is to suffer seeking understanding. To suffer seeking understanding. There's a interesting principle. And that is that, that God disciplines those he loves, right? God disciplines those he loves. So I think the very first thing that I should ask myself and I should ask God, when I go through a trial, when I go through suffering, when I feel pain on my backside is Lord, are you trying to show me something? Is there some unrepentant sin in my life that I need to deal with? Now, I'm not saying, oh, you're sick because you or your parents must have sinned. I'm not committing the error of John 9, saying this man was born blind because of either his or his parents' sin. I'm not falling into the error of Job's friends who are saying, you're suffering necessarily because of some specific unrepented sin. What I'm saying is, that we need to at least consider the possibility that our suffering is a result of our own disobedience. There's not always a connection, but sometimes there's a connection. Right? First Corinthians 11, Paul exhorted the Corinthians. Some of you are sick. Some of you even died because you are taking communion without being reconciled to your brethren. So it could be that we're suffering. We're going through pain simply because there's sin in the world, Romans 5, 12. And when sin came into the world, sin brought death into the world. And so we live in bodies that have mutated genes. We live in bodies that get cancer. We, we go through hard things because sins in this world, not necessarily a specific sin, but we also do need to entertain the possibility in our own lives that this pain that I'm going through is for a reason. God's trying to 
to help me see something, right? So I don't want to be quick pointing the finger when I see someone else that is suffering. Oh, you're suffering because surely you're hiding and harboring some unrepentant sin. But when I suffer, the first question I think I should ask myself is, Lord, search me and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Cleanse me. Help me to repent. If I come away from that process with a clean conscience and I'm convinced, you know, I'm, I'm going through a trial and I don't know why. There's no past sin that I can connect this to. Well, maybe the Lord is preventing me from a future sin. You'll remember Paul, when he talks in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, says that God had given him a thorn in the flesh in order that he would not become conceited. So the, the thorn in the flesh that Paul was dealing with, the trial that Paul was dealing with, was preventing him from becoming prideful. It was helping him be humble and, and keeping him from commit a future sin. So, the point is, if I'm going through suffering, I think these are the first types of things we need to be thinking through, that, that God is doing this. God has brought this trial into my life. He's done it for a reason. Maybe he's not going to ever tell me in this life why. Maybe, he's, maybe I'm not going to find any answers. But I do need to entertain the possibility that maybe I will. Maybe the Lord will make it clear to me that I need to repent of something and his hand of discipline is going to be on me until I do. And if that's the case, I need to repent that I might be restored. James 5 talks about that possibility that someone could be sick because of a sin. And if they confess that sin, they'll be healed. So there's not always a connection between suffering and a specific sin, but I think we should entertain that possibility. Second, suffer for holiness, right? Remember that if God brings a trial into your life, even if he doesn't show you a specific reason for some specific sin or circumstance, there's always a general reason that God puts us through trials, that God disciplines us in order that we might share in his holiness. That's Hebrews 12 verse 10. The psalmist says, it's good that I was afflicted so that I could learn your law. Right? That there's, there's this connection between our suffering and our sanctification. Right? There is a purpose in it. But once again, I think we need to make a, a, an important clarification. Oftentimes, pastors, in their desire to, to encourage those who are going through trials and encourage people who are suffering, say that suffering necessarily sanctifies the believer. If you're going through a tough time, I mean, God is going to use that to sanctify you. Well, that's its purpose, but there's a lot of people who suffer, who become bitter from their suffering. There's a lot of people who waste their suffering and don't use it to draw closer to the Lord in prayer and the word. There's a lot of believers who suffer deeply, who are not very sanctified, which is why we need to beg God. We need to plead with God to help us. Lord, use this pain to draw me near to you. Use this trial to teach me the importance of prayer. Use this trial to cause me to run to your word more often because that's the way that you're going to sanctify me. The pain doesn't sanctify me. The pain drives me to prayer. The pain drives me to the word of God, which the spirit of God uses to sanctify me. So we can't just think, oh, I'm suffering. 
I can sit back and relax. That's going to sanctify me. No, I'm suffering to help me focus on what's true and what's eternal and what I need to do to, to work towards the glory of God. Right? So we need to pray for sanctification. God is using this pain to burn off our dross and we need to embrace that. It's not that we love the pain. We're not masochists. We don't seek pain. We don't seek suffering. We don't seek trials, but we do seek greater conformity to Christ. We want to be more sanctified. We want to be more holy. And so if pain drives me to that end, I must embrace it. But again, sometimes we pray asking for understanding. We pray for holiness and we don't see a lot of anything. We don't get answers and we're still left with the question of why. And so as a third point here, I think we need to, to pray that God would help us to trust in him. Pray that the suffering and the pain would help us to, to trust more in his promises and his word. That, that the suffering that we're going through is, is sent by him. Right? Sent by him. He's sovereign. It's much easier to think God is the one who blesses and Satan is the one who curses. It's much easier to think God is the one who gives and Satan is the one who takes away. But that's not the God we worship. It's not the the God that Job worshipped. Yahweh has given, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is he who sends us the trials. He's sovereign. He's in it. And the reality is the more we think about that truth, the more comforted we are. Because there's actually no comfort in thinking that I'm going through pain or my family is going through pain for no reason other than the fact that Satan decided he wanted to hurt me. There's no comfort there. There's no hope there. The only hope and comfort is found when we embrace the reality that God is the one sending me this trial because God has a good eternal purpose in it and he's going to use it for my good and his glory. That's when I can actually embrace the trial as something good for me because I'm trusting in the promise of Romans 8, 28, that everything that's happening to me is for my good. You say, wow, you don't know what I'm going through. This isn't good. Well, not according to your definition of good, but the text in verse 29 defines what good is. And it says that what's good for you is to be molded into the image of Jesus. So, The confidence that we have is that every trial that comes our way has the purpose of changing us and transforming us more into the image of Jesus. The question is, do we trust that or not? The question is, do we believe that or not? And honestly, it's often not until the trials and the suffering comes that we're forced to embrace that truth and that reality that God, you've sent this. I don't see it. I can't understand the why in this, but I trust that if this is happening to me, you are on your throne. You are doing this. Help me to trust more. Help me to trust more in you every day. And it's actually not until we reach that point of utter trust that God is the one who sent the trial that we can get to the last point Uh, verse four in this process here of, of seeking joy in our suffering. 
Now, oftentimes when we try to comfort someone else, we try to get them right to, to this step uh, before walking through the other ones, and it's pretty hard. But, but in reality, if, if we've walked through the first three steps, the fourth step should be the natural conclusion. This hurts right now, but this is going to make me eternally more like Jesus. That's what I want more than anything. And when I get what I want more than anything, it makes me happy. Right? If we think of, you know, if you had to just sit down and think, what would be the thing that you would enjoy doing more than anything else in the world? Like if you could just take a day off and do whatever you wanted, what would you do? Think of that thing. I think someone says they're going to go to some game or do something, travel. Okay, so if you got the news that tomorrow you're going to do that thing, you're going to go to that game, like how would you respond? Would you be super sad? Or would you like be telling all your friends like, hey, we're going to do this. You know, and you're excited and you're, you're getting prepped and ready to do it. Why? Because you think now tomorrow was the best thing that could happen to you is actually going to happen to you. But that is the confidence that we have in everything that God does. What's absolutely and perfectly best for my soul for all eternity is exactly what God is doing in my life today and tomorrow. So if I'm having surgery tomorrow, although it goes against every fiber of my fallen emotions, I need to beg God to help me believe so strongly, to trust so deeply that this is for my eternal good, that I can consider it all joy. Not because I love pain, but James 1 doesn't say we should consider the pain joy. He says we can consider the end of the suffering as joy because we know it's, it's accomplishing something in us. It's sanctifying us. To take it a step further, if we're going through suffering and we don't view it this way, if we're going through a trial and we don't rejoice, we're disobeying this command. It's not an option to be happy and joyous about our trial. It's a biblical imperative to consider it all joy. If we don't do that, we're disobeying. And the root of that disobedience is most likely because we just frankly don't believe God's affirmation that what he's doing in our life is for our good. If you struggle, and we all do, (laughs) if we struggle to get there, to get to the point that we can rejoice in our suffering, I think one of the things that helps us is to suffer with, with an eye towards eternity, to look at, okay, why am I rejoicing? Why am I full of joy? Why should I be full of joy? It's because of what this is producing in me. It's because this is giving me a better eternity. So I need to, I need to work to try to get my eyes off of my present circumstances and get my eyes on, on the new heaven and the new earth the new body that God has prepared for me, uh, the, the new Jerusalem that he's prepared for me, the eternity that he's preparing for me. I need to long for that day when sin is gone, 
right? The, the clearest explanation of why sin is the cause for all the pain here that we face is that when you get to the new earth and there's no longer any sin, there's also no longer any pain or death or suffering. It's perfect. It's wonderful. Lastly, trying to transition just a little bit as ministers of the gospel of Christ, as pastors, when we go through trials, I think it's also helpful for us to start thinking along the lines of second Corinthians one and saying, okay, God, if you're putting me through this trial and you're comforting me in this trial, I know there's going to be a reason. I know it's because I'm to be passing that comfort on to someone else. Give me wisdom. Give me insight to know who, when, how I can be comforting others in their suffering. Because I know that you've put me through a trial in part, not only to sanctify me, but also to minister to others in need. Now, one, one caveat again, um, before we jump in just to the how to, to minister to others. I think as pastors, we need to be especially just begging God to give us wisdom when it comes to how to minister to others and not neglect our own families. Now, when we're strong and we're doing well and we have lots of time, it's fairly, it's not easy, but it's doable in the strength of the Lord to to maintain my own home and also go out of my home and visit others and minister to others. But when I get sick, when we get hospitalized, when we go through a trial, when our children are suffering, our time is extraordinarily limited. And the ability to to minister to others is very limited. And it becomes very easy if we're not cognizant of this reality to leave my sick son at home who's, who's begging me to stay with him, who absolutely needs me to be with him, to go visit someone else's sick child and absolutely destroy my ministry and disobey God's command to me to manage my own household well. Um, so we need to beg God to give us the grace and the strength to minister so well in our own homes, to minister and love our own wives so deeply, to care for our children so deeply that when they hear that someone else's child is in the hospital, they're the ones telling me, Daddy, go. They need you. Go, Daddy. Give them a hug for me. If we're not there, If our family's not there, we're not ready to to go yet. So, especially when our time is limited through our own trials, I think we have to be especially extraordinarily careful to manage our own households well. Because it's just so common that, you know, I get sick and things just start piling up at church. Things start piling up at work and and ministry and people that need phone calls and help. And so the moment that I have the strength and the energy to do anything, I'm ministering to someone else's family. And I need to remember the moment that I have strength, 
I need to spend the time to, to reach my first priority, which is my home. Um, obviously, my first priority is God. But in the context of whether I minister to someone else's family or my own, uh, I need to make sure my own home is well cared for before I'm caring for others. So hopefully uh, the first half here was, was helpful just trying to think through why we suffer, how we should suffer, how we should suffer well. Um, and the, the takeaway for me always is just how much do I actually want to be like Jesus? How much do I actually want to be like Jesus? If you think of us like a, like a rock sculpture that's being molded after the image of, of Jesus, of something else, and, and you have the, the sculptor, you know, he, he comes with his chisel and hammer and he starts taking off a piece of your shoulder and it hurts like crazy. You're asking yourself the question, is this pain worth it? Do I actually want to be transformed into Christ's image so badly that I'm inviting this chisel to to remove this sin from my life, then I'm going to embrace what God is doing in my life. And I'm going to trust and I'm going to rejoice. Um, And I think ultimately at the end of the day, when I am fighting against God, when he sends trials my way, it's because I'm communicating back to him. I'd rather stay like I am. I would prefer not to be more like your son. Because that's what, he, that's what he tells us the purpose of trials are. The purpose of trials are to get us to share in more of his holiness, to get us transformed more into the image of his son. If we don't want that image badly enough, it's going to cause all kinds of trouble for us trying to rejoice in our trials. I'm going to swap now to the second point, which is, after we've suffered well and we've been comforted well by the Lord and we've rejoiced in the trial that he sent us and we've been filled with peace, the peace that passes understanding, the joy in knowing that I'm going to thank God for all eternity for the trials that he sends in my life. Now I'm ready to comfort well. And I want to get, get, Real practical with you guys for a little bit, and then we'll talk uh, some little more theoretical stuff a little bit later. Um, First one is comfort practically. Just be really practical in the way that you minister to others. You know, the the golden rule, Matthew 7, just like, how how do you like to be comforted when you're going through a trial, when you're suffering, when you're sick? You know, put yourself in their hospital slippers and try to think, what would it be like? What would I want? It's, it's a consideration is a lost art in our culture. To, to just try to consider, how would this person want to be loved in this moment? Um, just thinking in the example of a hospital. Uh, I worked as a hospital chaplain for five years down here at County Hospital. And it's amazing just how inconsiderate some pastors are. I mean, I've literally seen a pastor walk into a hospital room and give zero thought to where he should stand. Guy's had neck surgery. He's got a brace on and he's sitting like this. And the pastor walks in and stands right here on this side of the bed. And, you know, the poor congregant is trying to love his pastor and be, and he's kind of like trying to 
to do this. And you could just see him straining his whole back. And like, what are you, like, have you not even thought, have you not even considered what this man is going through? And oftentimes we're just, we are so self-centered. We are so occupied with our own message and what we're doing that we just don't consider. We don't consider. So be practical. Just a few tips. If you're going to go to the hospital, go straight to the charge nurse or just the nurse assigned to the patient. Ask for information. They can be so helpful to you in deciding if it should be a short visit or a long visit, if the patient's just been medicated, if they haven't eaten in two days. All that information is going to help you be considerate and help you love. Wash your hands every five minutes or else the the hospital staff is going to see you as the enemy and not want you back. So be considerate, bring meals, write cards, love one another, just love. What you choose to do or not do when your congregants are going through massive trials in their life will be etched on their memories forever. It's amazing how we remember the details of our trials. You can think through, you can think through an event. Like if I would say, okay, where were you three weeks ago, Thursday at 3 p.m.? I mean, there's probably one or two people in the room that could remember. But if I said, where were you 9 a.m. on September 11, 2001, when you heard the news? Like, where were you? What were you doing? I bet you 90% of us remember exactly where we were, what we were doing, because that that moment of trial and suffering in our country etched that memory very deep into us. I mean, if you ask me, what were you doing March 23rd, 1996 at 5 a.m., I can describe to you every detail of what it was like to be picked up by a police officer and following an ambulance uh, to receive the news that my father had died in our living room floor. I remember every smell I remember exactly what the, the, the plastic seats in the police car felt like. Every detail is etched into my mind. You do not want the detail of your sheep to be, and my pastor didn't even care enough to show up. <laughs> you don't want that. You want them to remember that in the time of deepest trial and need in my life, my pastor was there to give me a hug, to assure me of his love and care. So just practically, just, just be there. doesn't matter what you say. I mean, don't say something foolish, but it, it matters more that you're there and that you're sending cards and that you're loving and you're calling than, than not. Oftentimes, I think as pastors, we're, especially as young pastors, we're so afraid that we're going to do something wrong and mess it up that we just don't go. So I was trying to decide if I should use this illustration or not, but it's too funny not to. <laughs> A couple years ago, I was in the hospital and one of the elders who I will not mention by name came and visited me. And I was, man, I was sitting on the bedpan. I had just used the restroom. It's just my wife and I in the room. He walks in and I just grab my gown and put it over 
I'm just hoping that he's going to make his visit short <laughs> and like trying to keep the smell down. And he's there for 20 minutes just trying to love me and pray for me. And I'm sitting on this. And it's like from a human perspective, you think like he just did everything wrong. Like, can you believe that like he just didn't even think like to knock before he came in or to, to ask the nurse if it was an okay time to come in. You know, I, I love this man so much for coming and visiting me. There were very few people who came. He came. He came and he loved me. I remember his prayer. I remember what he said to me. I don't, I don't care that I had to sit on a bedpan for 15 minutes. I don't care that it was awkward. It meant so much to me that he came and visited me. So, just as an illustration, don't, don't be afraid to mess up. Be more afraid to not show up. Just, just minister. Be practical. Be considerate. Second point. Comfort, I say emotionally. Be emotional. As men, we're really not comfortable with this. This saying this, that it's a, a biblical command to be emotional. But at the end of the day, when Paul says in Romans 12, weep with those who weep, that's not an option. If you show up to someone's house and they are crying and it does not move you, there is something sick with you, not them. There is something wrong with you. You are disobeying God's command to weep with them. Beg God to help you enter into their suffering, to feel what they're feeling. To, that the Holy Spirit would, would break you and, and experience the pain that they're going through so that you can be comforted and, and give them that comfort. But it is a command to weep with those who weep. As pastors, we're very quick to speak and slow to weep. And it is wrong. We need to be quick to weep and slow to speak when we're comforting and ministering others. We, we walk someone's, you know, we go to someone's house, we show up and, and they're going through a difficult trial and they say, pastor, why is God doing this? And we are so quick to answer that question, are we not? We're so quick to answer. And we chop their heads off with Romans 8, 28 and James 1 and we start quoting scripture to them, explaining to them. I had a, had a time, this is a number of years ago, that a seminary student was shadowing me at the hospital. And a patient literally asked that question, why is God doing this? Student goes in and answers. And I stopped him. I said, we'll be right back. I walked out. And I, said, I said, you know what? When Jesus on the cross said, why, why God have you forsaken me? You'd have answered him, wouldn't you? You would have said, well, Jesus, I mean, if we think of this exegetically, <laughs> Isaiah 53 explains very clearly why you're on the cross. Yahweh is actually placed on you, the sin of all of us, and that's why you're feeling abandoned. The expression, why have you forsaken me, God, is often the most horrific and profound expression of faith in God. It could be a man or woman questioning God's goodness, and you'll have to address that in the future, but it very well could be 
an expression of faith. If for someone to ask, why is God doing this? Think about that. Why is God doing this? This is an expression that the psalmist uses often. This is an expression, an admission that God is in this. It's an expression of, of pain of what they're going through. And the response to that expression is not a theological answer. The response to that is a tear because we are to weep with a person who's just expressed that anguish. So weep with those who weep, weep with them. Thirdly, comfort wisely, wisely. We need so much wisdom to apply the appropriate tone, the appropriate message to the given circumstance. Paul in in 1 Thessalonians 5, you guys know the, the verse says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Brethren, don't you dare admonish the faint-hearted. Don't you dare admonish the weak. That is wrong. We need, we need to learn. It, it's equally wrong to encourage the idle, right? And, and some of us need to, to straighten up our spines sometimes and be men and exhort more than we do. But... We need to be careful when we're entering into the room of someone who is weak and faint-hearted and needs to be encouraged that we don't lose sight of that and, and turn into preacher mode and start exhorting them to, to do, to do, to do, rather than to embrace them and love them and hug them. Right? need to be slow to, to shove theology down their throat, quick to, to minister to love, to embrace. Right? So one of the things that I try to do if I'm, I'm visiting someone, because I too, right, I'm a theology professor. You've got lots of ideas in your head when you're going to minister to someone. I try to think of one verse, just one thought. I mean, they're probably medicated. They're tired. They're not going to be able to, to process a, a, a four-point sermon Right? So just, just one encouraging thought that's going to give them hope, that's going to help them to fix their eyes on Jesus, going to help them focus their minds on eternity. One thought that's going to take me three to four minutes to express something biblical. And I walk in and I, and I share that. I share that truth with them. I kind of argue with them. And then I want to be persistent not grow weary in doing good to the people of God. Because the time that this person needs me, it's probably not four days after their loved one passed and everyone's sending them cards. It's probably six months later. It's probably nine months later. It's probably three years later that they most need you. So don't grow weary in being thoughtful and encouraging. Be wise about that reality. Fourthly, comfort truthfully, truthfully. We need to speak truth, men. We need to speak biblical truth. 
It's so easy to compromise on this issue when our people are going through trials. It's so easy. It's so easy to offer false hope. It's so easy to say that that God's going to make everything okay and you do not know that. It's easy to tell them that they're going to get better and you do not know that. You cannot make them a promise that God does not make them. You're their pastor. You are speaking authoritatively to them. If you tell them you're going to get better and Jesus opened a way for you to go to heaven, they take these two truths that you have presented them as equals, even if you don't. And if this one didn't turn out to be true, what confidence do they have that this one is? One of the things that I had the burden of doing as a chaplain was visiting people who updated their religious status while being in the hospital. They used to be evangelical and now they've changed their religion. And I would follow up with them. And it was often this point. Pastor said, if I prayed, pastor said, if I believed I would be healed. And I have prayed this prayer more fervently, more persistently than any other thing I've ever prayed in my life. And God does not hear me. Who am I kidding to think that God heard the prayer when I asked him to forgive me? Do not offer false hope. We cannot sacrifice truth on the altar of comfort. We must speak truth. And that's not just in the very difficult situations like a funeral, when it's so easy to tell that mother that her son, even though he never professed faith in Christ, is in God's presence. It's so easy, but we cannot compromise the truth. We need to be careful how we speak about healing. I'm a cessationist. That means I have to be careful with my words and the kind of hope that I give to people. I can pray fervently and do that God's going to give wisdom to doctors and use medicine and provide providential healing to people and, and surprises with the way that people recover from cancer and get better from pneumonia. And, and we attribute that wholly to God and we call it a healing because it is. But since I'm a cessationist, I don't show up to a funeral and pray that God would raise that person from the dead. Okay, you say, well, God could do that. God has done that. God will do that. I just personally do not believe that the scripture teaches that he continues to work miraculous healing today. I believe that giftedness was used to authenticate prophets for new revelation. So that means I have to have a clear distinction in my mind between miraculous healing and providential healing. So if a family with a child with Down syndrome comes over and asks for prayer for their son, 
I'm going to pray fervently for their son. I'm going to pray that the doctors would have wisdom in, in helping them and even finding medication that could help them reason more. And I can pray for all these things as long as it doesn't require God to break the rules and the laws of his creation and work a miracle through me because I'm a cessationist. So I'm not praying that the Lord would remove their extra 21st chromosome even if their parents want me to. Um, and that's hard. It's hard when you're looking at a mother in the eye and she's crying and she's just, she just asks you to pray. Can you just pray that my son would no longer have downs? It, it is so easy to fall into the error of just saying, saying the easy thing rather than saying the true thing. But if they know that we love them and we're quick to just cry and give a hug. I think in the end, they will be more greatly served by the truth, which will sanctify rather than giving them error, which will only cause more problems. Lastly, as we think about just comforting truthfully, right? Just, just remember nothing that I do Nothing that I say in my own human wisdom can help at the end of the day, right? I mean, I can hug and I can cry and I can minister and I can say sweet things. But at the end of the day, this person needs something that I can't give them. They need sanctification. They need glorification. And they're best served when instead of me talking about anecdotes and and, and comforting stories, they're best served when I help them to fix their eyes upon Christ who understands and has the power to actually help them. Fifth, as a kind of segue to that comfort spiritually, I just, if you do anything, just talk about Jesus. Just talk about heaven. Just talk about the Bible. And Jesus is the one who understands He's the one who's going to right all wrongs. So whatever you do when you comfort, please don't talk about yourself. We all know that guy. We all know that pastor who every time you express to him that you've gone through something, he one ups you because he's been through something worse. That is miserable. That's a miserable comforter. Oh, you're having knee surgery. Oh, I understand. I understand. I had, a, I had double knee surgery. <laughs> You're having bypass. I had double bypass surgery. I, I know what that's like. Show them that you understand. Don't tell them that you understand. Right? Show them you understand by your kindness, not by making it seem like their trial's not that big, because it is big to them. Minister to them at a spiritual level. Show them Christ. Lastly, comfort tirelessly. Don't ever stop. I love this example in, in Matthew 15. Even though it didn't jump to Matthew 15. Here we go. Matthew 15, 32. Matthew records, 
Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, we really got to think about not only what Jesus says, but the context in which Jesus says it. How many of you think that during the three days that the people had nothing to eat, Jesus was storing his snack lunch behind them and sneaking meals without sharing? Anybody think that? So if the people hadn't eaten in three days, Jesus hasn't eaten in at least three days, correct? Now, typically when we haven't eaten in three days, what do we do? What do who do we think of? I got to eat. <laughs> I got to eat. But do you see how Jesus took his hunger pains, his trial, and used those feelings to minister to others? I'm hungry. That means the people must be hungry. I feel like fainting. That means if I send the people away, they're going to faint. And so he was filled with compassion, compassion for them. When you get sick, does your sickness remind you to pray for the sick in your congregation? Because if it does not, you are sick in more ways than you know. Because our suffering should not focus us inward. It should cause thankfulness that God is using us to make us more like Jesus, who wouldn't be thinking of himself, but would be thinking about how to minister to his body, to his bride. And that's what it ought to be producing in us as well. Let us never grow weary in doing good. Never grow weary. Now, I want to take this a step further because you'll notice here when Jesus says this, I have compassion on the crowd. He doesn't even mention that he himself is hungry. He doesn't talk about himself. And that's because once again, he's practicing what he preaches because a few chapters earlier, 10 chapters earlier, actually nine chapters early in Matthew six, in the middle of the sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that we should practice our righteousness before whom? Not before men, but before God. So he says, don't sound the trumpet before you tithe. He says, don't pray aloud on the street corner and don't disfigure your face when you fast. Cause then people will know that you're fasting and you'll have your reward. But he takes it a step further, doesn't he? He says, not only should you not announce your suffering, announce your righteousness, you should actively seek to hide it. He says, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you pray, do it where? in your closet. And when you fast, 
Put oil on your face. Make your face shine. Put your makeup on. Straighten up your tie so nobody knows you're fasting except whom? God. And he will see what you're doing. And he will bless you. So if you're going through a trial, don't lose the praise of God by announcing it to the world. If you're going through a difficult season, pray. If you need others to help you bear the burden, certainly ask. But if the Lord is giving strength, if the Lord is giving faith, if the Lord is giving peace, if the Lord is giving joy, then be comforted by God and minister out of your grief to serve others, to love others, to love the flock of God, to comfort them in the same way that you've been comforted by God. We comfort well when we suffer well. We suffer well. We trust that God's in it. We rejoice in it. Because that's going to most enable us to be able to get our people to that same point of being able to trust God and rejoice in the trials that God sends their way. And whether we like it or not, we're going to be about this business until the Lord returns. Because trials are going to be a part of this life as long as we're sinful. Right? Why? Because the purpose of the trial is to get rid of that sin. The purpose of the trial is to get me more like Jesus. And so until that day when I see him face to face and I become like him because I see him as he is, God's going to be sending trials my way. The question is whether I'm using them for his glory by trusting him and rejoicing in them and then ministering comfort to others or whether I'm becoming bitter and angry and self-centered, thinking more and more about myself and my own trials rather than others. Let's pray. Father, we need your comfort so badly. I am I'm confident that in this room, there are many of us who are going through extraordinarily difficult trials of pain, suffering, being abandoned, division in the church. Just so many difficulties, Father. And we, we feel our incapacity to face these trials in the way that you instruct us. We look at these biblical principles of, of trusting in you and rejoicing and having hope. And we're just so far from that. It seems so impossible to have joy in our pain. And so we just beg your spirit. Father, would you in great measure transform us, change our desires, help us to see the end that you seek. Help us to see your purpose 
and our pain that one day we're going to be like Jesus. One day we're no longer going to have any sin. One day we're going to rejoice perfectly as we worship you for all eternity. Help us to love that truth and rejoice in that truth so much that it becomes contagious and that we can comfort and bring peace to others who also are going through pain. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.